Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. I am your host. Thank you for listening. I hope you're doing all right wherever you happen to be. Don't forget to subscribe to The Other People Show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also watch the program on The Other People YouTube channel. Search for it by name at YouTube, Other PPL, and subscribe there as well. Today, my guest is Emily St. John Mandel, author of the novel Sea of Tranquility. And also what came into play is this idea that I've taken from TV writing called hanging a lantern on it. And the idea is, if you have something that almost but doesn't quite work, plot-wise particularly, you hang a lantern on it. Sometimes having a character point out the thing that isn't quite working can, can almost help. Because it's like the character is an avatar for the skeptical reader. So that's why in Sea of Tranquility, there is a moment where we're in the year 2401 and there's a guy standing next to a time machine saying, we're not actually sure why this works. We, we don't know why the timeline seems to repair itself as if the time traveler were never there every time we send somebody back. We think the fact that it works at all might be evidence that we're living in a simulation. So yeah, it was... All right, that was Emily St. John Mandel. Her latest novel, Sea of Tranquility, is out there now in trade paperback from Vintage. Sea of Tranquility is a time travel story. It weaves together multiple plot lines. It unfolds across centuries. It binds them all together in surprising and deeply human ways. And I never once got lost reading this book for all of the traveling that it requires of the reader across time and space. I was always right there, which is a credit to Emily and her skill as a writer. This is her second time on The Other People Show. We first spoke all the way back in May of 2012, which feels like a lifetime ago, more than a decade ago. 
and well before the publication of Emily's big breakout novel entitled Station Eleven, which has sold millions of copies around the world and which was adapted into a limited series by HBO. So it has been quite a decade for Emily St. John Mandel, and I'm just pleased to have her back here on The Other People Show. Today's episode is brought to you by Melville House, publisher of Flux, the debut novel by Jinu Chong. I just had Jinu Chong on The Other People Show not too long ago. Listen to his episode. We talk about Flux, a mind-bending, stylish neo-noir about a young man whose reality comes apart when he begins to suspect that the tech startup he works for has inadvertently discovered time travel and is using it to cover up a string of violent crimes. That's Flux, the debut novel by Jinu Chong, available now wherever books are sold from Melville House. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show, more than 800 and counting, are all available to listeners free of charge. The entire archive is accessible. There's no paywall. I want this to be a user-friendly experience, but I am counting on regular listeners, people who love this show, people who love books and literary culture. I'm counting on such people to support this podcast and the work that I do week in and week out. You can support The Other People Show for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash otherpplpod. It's a sliding scale. So $1 a month, 3 5 10 20 whatever you can swing. And as you move up the scale, you can get merchandise, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a book club subscription, and so on and so forth over at Patreon dot com slash other ppl pod if you want to get a t-shirt you can do so at the other people website other ppl.com get another people t-shirt it's almost summertime they're soft they fit well they're good they're good t-shirts if you want to sign up for my free email newsletter it goes out once a week sign up at bradlisty.com or other ppl.com if you have a couple of minutes and you would be so kind i would appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you listen it helps the cause Watch the show on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button over there at the Other People YouTube channel. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Email me if you would like to offer feedback. The address is letters at otherppl.com. Last but not least, I have a new novel out. It's almost a year old. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so I'll read it to you. It's a work of autofiction. It took me forever to write it. It's personal. If that sounds interesting, read my book. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So my guest, once again, is Emily St. John Mandel. Her latest novel is called Sea of Tranquility. It is available now in trade paperback from Vintage. Emily's five previous novels include The Glass Hotel, which has been translated into 25 languages and Station Eleven, the aforementioned Station Eleven, which was a finalist for the National Book Award and the Penn Faulkner Award for fiction. It has been translated into 37 languages. So it's just great to welcome Emily St. John Mandel back onto this program. And I'm excited to share the conversation with you right now. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Emily St. John Mandel and her latest novel, One More Time, 
is called Sea of Tranquility. The background there is that I had an epic promotional tour for Station Eleven. So I'd done, I think it was 127 events in seven countries over 14 months. So, you know, I'd go out on the road for a few weeks, I'd be back home for a while, then back out on the road. And the thing is, like, I actually really like touring and I, I like doing events. I, you know, you, you get to meet people who you wouldn't, wouldn't have met otherwise. And I like hanging out in bookstores. I'm going to say that probably 99% of the interactions that I have on tour are completely positive. You know, people just want to connect with you about books and it's really lovely. If you do 127 of those events, that 1% does add up. So I'd had a number of kind of strange experiences on tour. And I think by strange, I actually mostly mean sexist, just kind of like bizarre interactions. And I wanted to write about them. It, it was just, it, it's a very strange job sometimes. And it just seemed to me that I'd had kind of a weird experience. And I don't meet very many people who who have my job and who've kind of been through that. And yeah, it, it just, it seemed like an interesting thing to write about. So I, yeah, I'd started writing these fragments of autofiction and I wasn't sure what I'd do with them. I, I kind of just saw it as an experiment in the form. I thought, well, maybe this will turn into something publishable someday, but maybe not. Maybe I'm just playing around here. And then the pandemic hit and everything was awful. And I had this feeling like, you know what, I, I'm going to write a book about a time traveling detective. You know, just like I kind of always wanted to do a time travel narrative. And so then I had to pick my timelines and, you know, we can get into why I picked 1912 and 2020. But then when I started looking ahead to the future time points, I thought, would it be interesting to take those autofiction fragments and just kind of filter them through a sci-fi lens? So, yeah, so I've got these sections in the book about an author on tour um, for a book that seems a lot like Station Eleven, but she's going home to a moon colony at the end of the tour. And then the, the novel is called Mary and Bad. And before we get into that, I do want to ask, because I'm sure listeners are wondering, you say, you know, first of all, this tour for Station Eleven, how many countries again? Seven. And how many events? 127. Okay. Very, very unusual. And I'm wondering, like these, it, like the 1% of interactions that are like sexist or disturbing in some way, mm -hmm. can you give an example? Yeah, absolutely. Candidly, I put it all in the book. <laughs> I've kept a journal all my life, so I had a verbatim record of those conversations. Yeah, you know, the woman in Texas who told me that I must have a very kind husband to look after our child while I, while I do what I do, which, you know, it's just try to map that conversation onto a man on a business trip. And like, it kind of bends your mind a little bit. Um, all the people who asked me if I was sure that I'd written my book without a prescribed message for readers in mind. And the response is always like, well, I am actually the expert on Station Eleven since I did write it. So yes, you know, those <laughs> moments. <laughs> or just the interactions that are not sexist. They were just kind of funny and off the wall. Somebody really did come up to me in a signing line once and <laughs> open up a, a used copy of Station Eleven. And somebody, not me, had written in it. The message really was something like, Dear Harold, I enjoyed last night. XOXO, Emily St. John Mandel. <laughs> it's just like, wait, what? <laughs> well, see, this is the thing. I mean, and this is, I mean, truly a surreal experience. And it is a mm -hmm. rare experience for anybody writing. And, and we can get into the issue of categories, but 
literary speculative fiction or highbrow science fiction, whatever you want to call it, to have this kind of readership and to go from having written three books that were not widely read to suddenly Mm -hmm. publishing a book that is super widely read and to be getting all of this feedback and to have this, this audience, some of whom have lines from your novel tattooed on their bodies. Oh my God. It's that, that's extraordinary. That, that blows my mind every time I see it. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. And you know, you've actually just touched on why that tour was so long. I, I'd written these three small press books, which very few people had read. And then Station Eleven was the book that completely changed my life. I just, I never would have imagined anything like the kind of readership that it got. And when I, but when I started to see that it had some momentum behind it, you know, when my budgeted five city tour turned into 11 cities and then 17, and then my UK publisher wanted me to come over, and then there were events in France, like just the way it started to build, I just had this feeling like, this is my chance. You know, this is the book that is going to completely change my career. So I just kind of said yes to everything until it got kind of crazy. Yeah. And I mean, I'm curious to know about the sense of momentum that you developed. I mean, you just touched on it, but for most writers out there, you know, an experience like this is foreign to them. (laughs) And so when things do start to tip and a book starts to catch a wave like station 11 did how like specifically how did it start to materialize do you start to get phone calls from your editor like does your agent start to be like hey like you're my favorite client (laughs) (laughs) like what happens like materially to you where all of a sudden it sort of carries you know this thing sort of carries you away you know, I have the world's most diplomatic agent so if I were her her favorite client I'm sure she'd never tell me that but you know, I think that all authors who publish a book are kind of always looking for signs. Like, is there some clue about the way the market's behaving or about the wording of emails from my editor or about which publicist I've been assigned to that like might make me understand kind of where I stand and how my book's doing? So there were, it just kind of materialized as a series of really good signs, starting at the very beginning, which is that the book sold at auction which is the most incredible thing. You know, for so much of our lives as writers, or at least this has been my experience, there was such a long period of time, three books, where, you know, the sort of vibe was, could somebody please read my book? You know, you're always kind of selling yourself. The auction experience was like Alice in Wonderland, like stepping through the looking glass into this upside down world where editors were calling me to pitch themselves you know, as in we think that Knopf would be the best possible fit for this book for the following reasons. So that was just the the most incredible thing. So yeah, so that was a really good sign. But a lot of books sell at auction and then go nowhere. The next really amazing thing that happened was there's this program in Penguin Random House called Tidal Wave, where the combined sales force of Penguin Random House will get behind just a couple of titles in a given season and just put all their weight behind it. And it's like this big campaign. So when I found out that Station Eleven was a title wave pick, that was a really big deal. Wait, I'd nev- I've I never heard that, of I've never heard of this title it's wave. It's a really I mean it's an internal thing. So like why would you? But it's a cool it's a cool thing. It's a really cool program. And it's kind of across imprints. So yeah, so people in imprints who I'll I'll never work with because I'm with Knopf and they're with you know, some, some section of Penguin, um, 
you know, we're we're championing Station Eleven. That was kind of amazing. The I, I think the thing that really tipped it over as far as momentum went was when it was nominated for a National Book Award, and that was extraordinary. That 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 feels to me like the moment that completely changed my career. So yeah, it's a series of things, and then. Through all of that, I was working as an administrative assistant in the cancer research lab. I'm from a very working class background, by which I mean there's no safety net. So I held on to that day job for a really long time. And what clarified the question of what to do with that job was a conversation I had with a comedian. He said, well, you know, the advice someone gave me was keep your day job until you can't afford to anymore. So I did that. I held on to that job until almost a year after Station Eleven came out. And it got kind of crazy. Like there were there were days when I had to leave work early because I had like a photo shoot at Time magazine, <laughs> things like that. Or um, right. there was this kind of long, surreal period where as an administrative assistant, one of my duties was booking plane tickets for my boss. But I didn't book my own plane tickets. I had publicists who were doing that. Right. So it was a very strange time. Like between worlds. Between worlds, exactly. But it finally got to the point where I was too tired from doing the day job to do my events very well. And it just felt like I truly couldn't afford the day job anymore. So that was the most incredible material thing. I, I'd really always believed that I would always be an administrative assistant who wrote books on the side. And I was at peace with that. But yeah, when that momentum around Station Eleven built up to the point where I could quit that job. That was, that was incredible. Yeah. It's got to be somewhat mysterious to you even. I mean, you think about the three previous books on smaller presses that did not take off and then Station Eleven suddenly sells at auction. Can you, with any degree of objectivity, look at Station Eleven and discern what it was about it that might have given it the ride that it's gotten, or at least gotten it to the to auction versus the other books? Yeah. I recognized as I was finishing the first draft that it might be a somewhat more commercial project than my previous books, which were kind of in the literary noir space, you know, literary fiction, but with car chases and detectives. I think it was something about the post-apocalyptic setting, but putting that in a narrative that was fundamentally hopeful. I wrote it with the idea that it was kind of the anti-road, which I love the road. I think it's a great book. The Cormac McCarthy novel. Yeah, 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 exactly. You don't need to read it twice, but it's a great novel. Yeah, I I think the combination of it being post-apocalyptic, but also very hopeful, I think was part of it. I also do think there is an element of mystery here. And I don't mean this in a self-denigrating way at all. I believe in that book and I believe in my work. I also believe that there are writers at least as good as I am who don't ever get the readership that I found. And, you know, that can be a little bit mysterious. It's, you know, which five people were on the jury for the National Book Awards that year? You know, which reviewer was assigned your book, the New York Times, or, you know, whatever the review was that might have pushed sales over. So, yeah, it's uh, there, there is some luck involved. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, 
based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Do you ever struggle? Like, do you ever think, do you ever, I mean, I was raised Catholic. I know from having researched that you were raised with no religion. So you probably Mm -hmm. don't have the guilt complex that I have. (laughs) Would you, do you, have you ever been like, I'm not worthy or feeling bad when you have writer friends who you know are really good, but who are still in that admin job or whatever it is? You know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. I used to struggle with that a bit. And I've, I've had to let go of that for my own sanity because I feel like there are no real answers and that it's not moral. You know, it's just the marketplace. That's kind of how I see it. And that's kind of the only way I can understand my life. It's like I used to grapple with that. You know, why did I get so lucky with Station Eleven when a lot of other very talented writers were not able to quit their day jobs? There isn't an answer. You know, I, I know the book's good. I also know a lot of other books are good. And there are equally talented people out there um, who've had a harder time finding readers. What I came to eventually was you don't have to understand this life. You just have to live it. And yeah, I, I have at this point completely divorced myself from any kind of, um, I guess, any kind of moral trappings around that. So I don't feel guilty. I also don't feel like I'm incredibly special you know, or anything like that. I, I My understanding of my life is that I write books that that are able to find a wide readership and that it's kind of market driven in a way. It's the, um, it's the good fortune of having the art that I create align with what people want to read or that enough people want to read that I don't have to have a day job. And then just some magical aspect. There is some, I feel, I feel like this having talked to so many writers through the years, it's like, I hear about tidal wave and now that you say it, I might've heard that before in a previous conversation. But like that strikes me just as one example of like a lever, like a marketplace lever Mm -hmm. that like an actual human being can pull. Yes, exactly. Like, you know, like that lever was pulled on your behalf and that's a tangible human identifiable break that you got. Yeah. And then the book goes out and really though, that's where the rubber meets the road. Like actual readers have to read it and there has to be a, a response that's generative of more readers. You know what I'm saying? Like Mm -hmm. how that happens and how the work itself speaks to the moment that it is in 
I feel like is something you cannot game as a it, writer it or a publisher. Really, yeah, it really isn't. There, there is so much luck involved, and you know, it's. Uh, I think some people don't want to acknowledge that because it feels like they're putting themselves down, and I don't mean it that way at all. I know the book's good, but but I was very lucky at the same time. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's. I mean, it's it's both, right? Yeah, Why can't yeah. both be true? Yeah, you know, absolutely. it doesn't have to be a binary. Yeah. I, I'm wondering about the process of publishing Station Eleven, that sort of launching you to a new stratosphere as a writer, then publishing subsequent books, of which Sea of Tranquility is one. Uh, I'm wondering how it has impacted you to become more public facing to become a quote unquote name author. And I guess like a, a related question, like has it become harder? Like dealing with the expectations after station, I know was a, difficult for you, right? A little bit. Yeah. Um, this is approximately the least sympathetic problem in the entire world, which is what I about it. But it is human. It's human and it is actually real. Yeah. With my first four books, like writing the first three novels and then writing Station Eleven, it's not like anybody aside from my reps were waiting with bated breath to see what was coming next. Like, I, I don't, I don't want to say nobody cared. You know, I, I did have champions and I'm forever grateful for independent booksellers in particular who, who really stood behind my work from the beginning. But yeah, there was not a huge crowd waiting to find out what I was writing. For that reason, well, that was part of the reason, I think, why The Glass Hotel, my book right after Station Eleven, took as long as it did. That book was five years, which is not crazy. You know, Donna Tartt's novels take a decade or longer. But my previous speed had been about two and a half years to write a book. That's how long it took to write Station Eleven. There were other logistical issues. So I had a baby right after the Station Eleven tour and, you know, early parenthood. Like that does not speed up your writing process. So, no. that, you know, that, uh, that slowed down Glass Hotel. I also wasn't working on Glass Hotel for, well, for a while after Station Eleven came out, just because I was always on the road. Like, it took a really long time to, to have the time to focus on it. But also, there was that weight of expectation, which I'd never had before. And it did feel, yeah, it, it did feel like a weight sometimes. You know, and I'd log into Twitter and some total stranger would be like, time for Emily Mandel to write her next book. It's like, ugh, I'm working on it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's also like the issue of reader expectation. Obviously, that's part of it. Like you're in a situation where you you have a lot more people who are waiting for your next book, and so that can become kind of a mind fuck. I would imagine it would for me. But then I think part of the equation that maybe doesn't get as much attention is the kind of business side of things like the obligation that I can imagine a writer feels to his publisher or her publisher, you know, like, oh my God, like they're waiting for my next thing. I don't want to disappoint the people at Knopf who gave me the title wave the last time, you know, all that kind of stuff. If you hand them a, a book that's like undercooked or is a stinker somehow, like, uh, you know, I can see how psychologically that would be part of it. Yeah, th that is part of it. I, I did feel, I did feel this desperate desire to not disappoint anybody which I hadn't really felt with the previous books because not that many people cared. But yeah, it, it was it was this feeling like whatever follows Station Eleven had better be good. I, I did feel that way the whole time I was writing The Glass Hotel. 
and and that was part of why it took so long. With, with The Glass Hotel, it took me a really long time to figure out what the book even was. I ended up, the revisions in that book were so intense that I felt like I wrote three different versions of that novel. The structure was just kind of all over the place and characters came and then were written out and written in again. And it was just, it was just really hard to find. What made it harder was that I sold the Glass Hotel as a partial, which I'd never done before. And just like for definitions, for anybody who's not familiar, that just means I sold it as a partial manuscript because Trump had just been elected. And I just had this feeling like, well, obviously the economy is about to collapse. So let me just get a book deal in under the wire. So <laughs> I am um, not, not, yeah, uh, not so an I, unwise move. No, no. I thought, you know, it seemed sound at the time. Uh, but what that meant was that when my publisher eventually read the first draft, that was their first time reading the book, which they'd bought. And it was it was pretty intense. I can laugh about it now, but the first round editorial notes were basically like, we love this. Could you please change the structure, the plot, the characters, the pacing, <laughs> like every element of the book? <laughs> so, right. Uh, I did. I, I rewrote that book three times until it came together. Okay. So I can understand how that would be disruptive emotionally <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, yeah. at any stage of a writer's career. You don't have to be, you know, publishing in the wake of a big success like Station Eleven to have that be difficult at the same time. And in particular, with respect to the success that you were coming off of, to have editors who cared enough to push back, you must appreciate that in hindsight, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I have always been very intensely edited, you know, both with a small press and uh, and with my current publishers. They're all big houses. You know, it's Knopf in the U.S., Picador in the U.K., and then HarperCollins in Canada. And I have an editor at each of those places. Yeah, they they really edit me, which I really appreciate. It, it's sometimes hard in the moment, you know, when I get these nine-page emails authored by three people. And it's just... Yeah, just trying to make these massive changes to the book. And that can be. I don't mean to interrupt, but like the question that pops into my head, having publishers in different territories, is that the editors work in conjunction with one another to give you editorial feedback? Yeah, yeah. I think it's kind of an unusual situation, but it, uh, it goes back to how we sold Station Eleven, which is we auctioned it separately in every territory. So yeah, so I went with Knopf in the US and then... I just really connected with Jennifer Lambert at HarperCollins Canada. So I went with her for Canada and then with Sophie Jonathan at Picador in the UK. And I was a bit worried that it would be this kind of nightmare editing by committee scenario, but they're all really smart. And, um, you know, so far their visions haven't clashed for any of the three books that I've done with them. But yeah, the notes are epic because it's three people and they have a lot of ideas. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think something that I've read or heard through the years is that maybe when a writer achieves a certain level of commercial success, they actually get edited less because mm -hmm. they're just like, whatever, this person knows what they're doing. Let's just keep riding this gravy train, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would, if, if that were to ever happen to me, I would feel nervous. I would want to feel like people were putting their best brain to the book and were really kind of pushing back against anything that they felt wasn't working or could be improved. I, I, I like the idea of being edited. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because it's like we're not subjective about our own pros. Oh. We, you know, you really, really need that an outside perspective on that. Yeah, I hope they never stop editing me. And I, I've heard the same thing. And you know, I, I have noticed that writers, writers who write series, that you know, the subsequent books get longer and longer and longer. And you know, one might find oneself wishing for the perfect three hundred page book within the six hundred page book when that happens. I, I think, though, also there might be some element of urban legend, like urban publishing legend, to this, because I have absolutely come across the sentiment on publishing Twitter, where writers are like, editors don't edit anymore, and I always feel like, literally, what are you talking about? I am so edited, <laughs> you know, which is like you. Yeah, that's how I want it. I want to be edited. Well, but I think the the counter like idea, the counter narrative to what we're discussing is that it might be the case that when there is more money on the line for the publisher and they feel like they stand to gain more if the book is really good, that they would care more and edit more and that authors in whom they have invested less get less attention. That makes a lot of logical sense yeah, to me. Yeah. I mean, that is possible. And I have to acknowledge I've had a pretty privileged experience here where with my first three books, it was a very small press and my my editor was great, Greg Michelson at Unbridled Books. He made all my books much better than they would have been. So I felt pretty intensely edited over there. I haven't had the experience of being with a big house where my book hasn't gotten attention. And I realize that makes me sound obnoxious, but that is just what happened, you know, because I did have that kind of lucky break with Station Eleven. So it, that is very possible. I don't, yeah, that could be true. So another aspect to the ride that you've been on since 2014 has to do with what I have in my notes here as creepy prophecy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Look, there was always going to be another pandemic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But this is something that has been ascribed to you after Station Eleven is that the book was somehow predictive of all that came afterwards in 2020 with COVID-19. And I should note for listeners that I am speaking with Emily St. John Mandel, and this would distinguish this interview from the hundreds that I'm sure you have done. Uh, I'm speaking to you as you are recovering from COVID-19, correct? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I feel my like- My voice sounds a little weird. It's, um, yeah, it's a little on the nose, I have to say, from my well, brand, just here a, we are. Another la like meta layer to you know, everything mm -hmm. is that- I'm talking to an author recovering from COVID-19 who wrote a book about a pandemic and in- Sea of Tranquility writes about an author who narrowly escapes a pandemic. I mean, we could go on, right? It's like an infinite loop. Isn't it's it? an, it's like, yeah. It really is. <laughs> right. So a couple of things. First of all, how you make sense of, I, I, I recognize that another pandemic was always going to happen, but just the, the closeness, the relative closeness between Station Eleven and the COVID pandemic. And then I guess a related kind of question has to do with Sea of Tranquility and the sort of supernatural, uh, or yeah, supernatural, time travel y, life is existence is a simulation sort of aspect. Mm -hmm. um, there's like a magical aspect to that. And I, wanna, I want us to discuss it as it pertains to your worldview, like your actual worldview and maybe lived experience. So first of all, the creepy prophecy. <laughs> right. What's up with that? You must get tons. You must get tons of feedback from press and from readers. And 
they must view, have you gotten this sense that they view you as some kind of prophet? Is that, that must be like a little bit strange. <laughs> it's really strange. Yeah. I, I get that all the time, especially on Twitter. And, you know, you can say there was always going to be another pandemic till you're blue in the face. But to your point, those two things, Station Eleven and the pandemic, were really close together. The um, the pandemic in Station Eleven was a little bit incidental to the plot. I, I just wanted to get to this post-technological world, and a pandemic seemed like a horribly efficient way to get there. Um, it's kind of embarrassing, but you know, I, I traveled the U.S. giving a lecture about Station Eleven and post-apocalyptic literature for years in between that promotional book tour and the outbreak of COVID-19. The lecture literally contained the line, there will always be another pandemic. And yet I was totally blindsided by COVID-19. I didn't feel any more prepared than anybody else did. I was, yeah, frantically buying toilet paper along with the rest of us. (laughs) Yeah, it was, I don't know what to tell you. It was a weird experience. (laughs) Yeah, a a lot of people wanted me to write about it, to write essays and op-eds about the experience of being the author of Station Eleven in a real life pandemic. And I didn't want to do that, but the experience was weird enough that I did want to write about it, which is why it comes into play so much in Sea of Tranquility. Yeah. Well, there's a line, I believe it's a line from Olive in Sea of Tranquility. If I have this wrong, forgive me, but the line is, quote, my personal belief is that we turn to post-apocalyptic fiction not because we're drawn to disaster per se, but because we're drawn to what we imagine might come next. We long secretly for a world with less technology in it. And this speaks to what you just said about wanting to kind of get to the the post-apocalyptic world with less technology in it. What's sort of the quickest way to get there mm-hmm. in a, yeah, yeah. In a and, dark way? And that, that was the pandemic. It was. And also like full disclosure, that was a line from my Station Eleven lecture, which, yeah, which I delivered all over the country. And then after March 2020, I didn't want to lecture about pandemics anymore. I felt very done. <laughs> but, but that yeah, was good material. Okay. So I gave it to all of my fictional character delivers the lecture that I used to deliver. I should note too that in prepping, I read, I think something from an interview where you said that you you wondered whether or not you would be able to write a novel like Station Eleven after becoming a mother. I thought that was an, an interesting insight, like to write a book where 99% of the population is wiped out by a virus and to have to think about that, especially in new motherhood, you know, where you have yeah. this infant child and mm-hmm. all of the responsibilities that that entails, but also all of the questions about have I made the right choice? I think most parents in the modern age have these kinds of inner debates. Did I did I do a wise thing? Am I ready for this? Is it you know all those things? To then be living in an imaginative space, day after day, where a super virus comes in and you know wipes most everybody out. That would be tough. It's it was. I found the those sections of of Station Eleven intensely difficult to write, and that that was before I had a child. You know, so what I found myself thinking was, well, if it was kind of, if it was barely bearable then, I don't know that I could have done it after having a child where, you know, I think parents live in a permanent state of terror and you just kind of get used to it because if your child died, it would be the end of the world. And you just kind of learn to live with that over time. That's actually one of the many things that I admire about 
the HBO Max adaptation of Station Eleven, which is that I know all the people who worked on that show and their parents. So that they did live in that imaginative space in this world. Yeah, where they, they would, you know, die psychically, like if anything happened to their kids. I, I don't yeah, I don't think I could have written that book after becoming a mother, but there were people who were able to tell that story on TV after becoming parents. And I admired that. It's really not easy. Well, interestingly, Station Eleven really resonated during the pandemic, where I think there's one school of thought that might have it being like too much. Like people would mm-hmm. be turned, you know, turned off by it. like I've got enough. I'm living it. I don't need it as a narrative in my life. But in fact, the opposite was true. People gravitated toward it and found comfort in it. Right? Yeah, I think that's fair to say uh, for both the book and the series. I, I think a big part of that is you could look at it as a pandemic story or you could look at it as a story about the way life continues after the pandemic. And there is a kind of inherent hope in that. Yeah, for sure. And also like, I think we are, I mean, I should I say we, I know I turn to books for instruction, fiction or non, and there's something instructive about reading a story, however speculative or sci-fi or, you know, imaginative it may be that somehow speaks to the experience that we're living through and gets into it with depth and maybe goes and and maybe importantly goes beyond Mm -hmm. the real do you know what i'm saying like the circumstances in station go beyond what we experience they're much more intense 99 percent of the population is wiped out whereas covid the loss of life was still extraordinary but was far less yeah which was kind of you know, it's it's been kind of an f- interesting experience comparing the way I thought a pandemic had to be versus like what it actually was. That that was one of the things where, you know, in retrospect, 99.9% of the population, that's overkill. You don't need to do that. It turns out that, I don't know what we lost in this country, 2% of the population, which is a scenario more like the leftovers, by the way, if you want to get literary about it. It turns out that's devastating and that completely upends society, just a very small number. Well, when I think about, you know, to, to kind of finish out the first part of this like magical aspect, the creepy prophecy question, I think there's some truth to the fact or to the idea that writers, certain writers anyway, can function as antennas or antenna, uh, antennae. What's the plural? I don't know email? how to pronounce it, but I can see the word <laughs> in my head. I know exactly what yeah, you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But you are somebody who is an astute watcher an observer. I know that you grew up as a shy child and were sort of observational in temperament. And you're also a deep reader, as most good writers tend to be, and absorber of culture, a fan of culture. I imagine you're into good movies and TV the way that most creative people are. So it makes sense to me that certain people would become predictive in some way that we can't maybe even define, that you might be absorbing these things and you might be sensing certain things coming. Like I, I want to say Kurt Vonnegut used to call writers canaries in the coal mine. Like we keel over first. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's an interesting idea. Yeah. But I mean, like, I don't know exactly how it happens and I don't want to make us sound too special, but it just it's just a function of the work that we do and maybe the way that we're wired. It makes some sense to me that you would have published Station Eleven just a few years before COVID hit, that you might have sensed, like I think we all, a lot of us have sensed the, this sort of coming apart of mm-hmm. uh, our 
society, especially here in the States, maybe, you know, just this yeah. feeling of, and then the climate, you know, there's this sense of like our ecology being under great stress and when's the breaking point, you know, maybe it manifested in you somehow, like maybe your little antenna picked up enough signals that you were able to work on some subconscious level in a way that ended up being predictive, even though it was unintentional on your part to be so. I mean, it's possible. You know, if it's unintentional, I can't take credit for it. But yeah, per perhaps it comes partly of just thinking about the consequences of how interconnected we all are now, which is, you know, it took the Black Death two years to get from Italy to England. Now that's, I don't know, three-hour flight and it's been a while. But yeah, it's just everything happens so quickly now and we're everywhere. And threats that used to be very different, uh, very distant rather, epidemiologically speaking, are suddenly kind of right there. You know, it's a few hours away. So that, yeah. That's that, an that, interesting yeah. aspect. That's an interesting aspect to Sea of Tranquility and to Station 11 and to COVID-19 uh, is the speed with which and the, and the ghostly nature of a pandemic and its movement the way it's very far away and then suddenly it's right in your face. Like that was one of the more destabilizing aspects of living through COVID is that sort of getting these reports back in December of 2019 about Wuhan and about, you know, you'd seen like, I remember a friend and I trading YouTube videos taken in hospital waiting rooms. You know, there were these weird grainy, like terrifying videos. And mm -hmm. my buddy and I were like, I think this could be really fucked up. Like that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. To suddenly it's like, you know, the state of Washington is, I think that was where the first shutdowns happened mm -hmm. and, you know, it yeah. just moved I mean, quickly. The line in the book, which is, which came straight out of my thinking in, you know, New York City, March 2020 was pandemics arrive in retrospect, like in a way that's really unsettling where one moment it's really far away, like Italy's in trouble, um, China's in trouble. You know intellectually that you're in a city with multiple international airports. Like obviously it's already here, but there was no testing available for so long. So then it somehow felt to me like it jumped from this is a distant threat that's coming closer to this has been here for a month and it's really bad and it's already too late to avoid catastrophe. And by the way, there are field hospitals in Central Park. You know, it just it, it <laughs> happens so quickly that it feels like that it feels retrospective. It's so strange yeah. that we lived through all that. It feels yeah. like we're on some degree. I think we're on the other side of it now, right? Or to I some degree at so. least. Not, yeah. I mean, you're yeah. recovering from it and it's still out there, but it's obviously something we're living with now. Mm -hmm. But just the intensity of, you know, spring of 2020 and into the following year. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it almost feels like it happened to some other version of us or something, right? Because like we're a, all kind of traumatized and we don't want to talk about it. Uh, you know, we, we've all been through this horrible thing that we're trying very hard to bury and pretend never happened, but it did happen. Like we remember the refrigerated trucks outside the hospital morgues and like the horror of those moments, but it's kind of too much to process. So we're not. And I, yeah. I feel like that hasn't had a great effect on us as a society, that there is this this weird kind of denialism, not wanting to think about it, not really wanting to talk about it. You know, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Um, and it is kind of past us, but I keep meeting people with long COVID. So for so many of us, it's not. It's in our bloodstreams and our bodies. And I think it's almost too traumatic to think about. And that's why we don't. And it's yeah, not it's sort healthy. Of similar to like the climate crisis, you know, the yeah, way that people- exactly. 
like I think there's this sort of cavalier almost like brazen courage or ladidaness about people's anticipation of like massive climate disaster that isn't authentic. It's just like an emotional response to the issue being too terrifying. Like, it's a process. Yeah. So in other words, it's like February 2020 in New York when we were like, obviously the virus is already here, but you know, uh, we'll, we'll be fine. Uh, whatever. You know, we made jokes We're New about Yorkers. It. We're, We're New, New Yorkers. Yorkers. <laughs> we can do anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a similar kind of feeling to that. So the second aspect of this magical question that I'm asking you has to do with um, a plot line in Sea of Tranquility related to time. This is, as you said, a time travel novel. And it also brings into play this question of, uh, what's it called? The simulation theory? Simulation hypothesis, yeah. The simulation hypothesis, which for listeners who might not be fully clued in. Can you just tell us what that is? Yeah, sure. Um, it's what it sounds like. It's the idea that maybe all of us are living in a simulation. It's um, I came across it years ago on like one of those 1 a.m. Google rabbit holes. What I love about it is you can find very smart people who will very convincingly argue either side of that. Yeah, I, I don't have a firm stance. I don't know if we're living in a simulation, but it was the only way to make a time travel narrative work, technically, <laughs> which, which I can well, get but, into if you want. Um, well, no, because that's an interesting question. And I do want to discuss making a time travel novel work. But I like this idea of having that challenge presented to you and fusing the issue of time travel, like the narrative challenge of time travel with the narrative challenge of we're living in a simulation. Like it's one of those things that in retrospect is like such a logical leap. It's like, oh yeah, that would be a way to make it work. So yeah. kudos to you for finding it. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. It's like the problem with time travel stories is they don't work. You know, like if you think about it for five minutes, it's like, well, if I, if after this interview, I step into a time machine that takes me back to 1950, was I not then always going to step into the time machine and back to 1950? It's like this infinite loop. And then also, how is all of human history not completely altered every time any traveler goes back in time? Like it just doesn't really hold together. So I felt like like the only way to make that work was to add this whole other level of weirdness, and that's the simulation hypothesis. And also what came into play is this idea that I've taken from TV writing called hanging a lantern on it. And the idea is, if you have something that almost but doesn't quite work, plot-wise particularly, you hang a lantern on it. Sometimes having a character point out the thing that isn't quite working can, can almost help because it's like the character is an avatar for the skeptical reader. So yeah, so that's why in Sea of Tranquility, there's a moment where we're in the year 2401 and there's a guy standing next to a time machine saying, we're not actually sure why this works. We, we don't know why the timeline seems to repair itself as if the time traveler were never there every time we send somebody back. We think the fact that it works at all might be evidence that we're living in a simulation. So yeah, it was just, it was just the only way I could, I could make that narrative work. So I want to have you read now okay. uh, a small section from Sea of Tranquility that speaks to the simulation theory or the simulation hypothesis and some of the more magical aspects of the story that you're telling, and then we can discuss. 
Okay, sure. I'm going to read a very short section from uh, the first section of the book, which is set in 1912. To set this up a little bit, our character here is named Edwin, and he's a remittance man, which means he basically has a trust fund. The law in England at that time was that for families with an estate, like the, the entire estate had to go to the eldest son, which left kind of a surplus sons problem. And the solution that people used to come up with was, well, you send the sons to Canada or Australia and see if they can make a go of it there. So Edwin's the son of an earl. He's kind of stranded in British Columbia. He has no idea what he's doing, and he's totally unequipped for for literally anything. And I'm going to pick up at a moment where he's on the beach and a couple of indigenous women are looking at him and he feels kind of like unsettled because they don't respond to him at all. So he walks past them and here's where I'm going to pick up. He keeps walking and then at some distance, still feeling their eyes on his back and wishing to convey an impression of having some sort of important errand to attend to. He turns toward the wall of trees. He never goes into the forest because he's afraid of bears and cougars, but now it holds a strange appeal. He'll step in a hundred paces, he decides, no more. Counting off a hundred paces might calm him. Counting has always calmed him. And if he walks straight for the full hundred, then surely he can't get lost. Getting lost is death, he can see that. No, this whole place is death. No, that's unfair. This place isn't death. This place is indifference. This place is utterly neutral on the question of whether he lives or dies. It doesn't care about his last name or where he went to school. It hasn't even noticed him. He feels somewhat deranged. The gates of the forest. The phrase comes immediately to mind, but Edwin's not sure where he picked it up. It sounds like something from a book he might have read as a boy. The trees here are old and enormous. It's like stepping into a cathedral, except the underbrush is so thick that he has to fight his way through. He stops a few paces in. He sees a maple tree just ahead, large enough that it's created its own clearing, and that seems like a pleasant destination. He'll walk to the maple tree, he decides. He'll step out of the underbrush and linger a moment. Then he'll go back to the beach immediately and never enter the forest again. This is an adventure, he tells himself, but it doesn't feel like an adventure. Mostly it feels like being slapped in the face with salal branches. He fights his way through to the maple. It's quiet here, and he has a sudden certainty that he's being watched. He turns, and there, as incongruous as as an apparition, is a priest standing no more than a dozen yards away. He's older than Edwin, perhaps in his early 30s, and has very short black hair. Good morning, Edwin says. Good morning, the priest says, and forgive me, I didn't mean to startle you. I like to walk here on occasion. There's something about his accent that eludes Edwin. It's not quite British, but not quite anything else. He wonders if the man's from Newfoundland, like his landlady back in Halifax. It does seem a peaceful destination, Edwin says. Quite so. I won't intrude on your contemplation. I was just on my way back to the church. Perhaps you'll stop in later. The church at Cayette? But you're not the usual priest, Edwin says. I'm Roberts, filling in for Father Pike. Edwin St. Andrew, pleased to meet you. Likewise, good day. The priest seems no more practiced at walking through underbrush than Edwin. 
He crashes away between the trees, and within minutes, Edwin is alone again, gazing up at the branches. He steps forward into a flash of darkness, like sudden blindness or an eclipse. He has an impression of being in some vast interior, something like a train station or a cathedral, and there are notes of violin music. There are people around him, and then an incomprehensible sound. So that's a strange moment in the forest in 1912. Yeah, and as a reader, and it happens early in the book, and as a reader, it, it delivers this great feeling of destabilization, like, whoa, like things just got weird. Good, good. That's what <laughs> yeah. I wanted to happen. Yeah, no, and there's also some menace, and you know, whenever you're in the forest and suddenly there's another person in the forest, and then it's a priest, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, things yeah. are getting yeah, odd. Yeah, that's weird. So, um, I wish I could do <laughs> accents, by the way. I absolutely can't. But um, yeah, Edwin has this kind of upper class British accent, and the priest, who's not very good at his job, is trying to imitate that and like not quite, not quite doing it. Right. So. A question that I have for you is whether or not, I know that you were raised in British Columbia. We mm-hmm. talked years ago. I mean- I remember, yeah. Long time ago. This ago. is way before Station Eleven. Yeah. And I remember we discussed your upbringing a little bit. You grew up on Denman Island in British Columbia, which I think is you know, obviously a similar territory that you're writing about mm-hmm. here. And you had close contact with nature- and we're living in kind of a remote, like rural environment. I am wondering, and as we've discussed, you have this good antenna. That's the <laughs> right. way we can put it. Have you ever had any kind of supernatural experience of your own? Seen a ghost, been in the forest and felt something strange? Like, is it pure imagination and speculation here? Or are you working from some more personal deep sense of mystery or supernaturalness. I've definitely been in the forest and felt something strange, but nothing that I could even recount, like just a feeling of like this strange feeling, like deep unease, like maybe somebody's watching me. Um, And who knows if they were or not, you know, forests can make you kind of paranoid when you're out there by yourself. I've never seen a ghost. I did once take a really strange photograph which I can post online with this interview if you want. I was trying to photograph this loft bed at an Upper West Side apartment that I was renting because I was trying to just like capture a picture of it for a subletter. And I was standing on top of the radiator, just like taking picture after picture with a digital camera. And there's one picture with a uh, a white transparent hooded figure in the lower left corner. And I, I don't know what's up with that. It's really creepy. Um, it, the, it's not on the picture right before or the picture right after. Kind of looks like somebody was just dropping a towel that got blurred, but I was the only person in the room. And, you know, yeah, I, I can't explain that. Wait, and wait, this was a film camera? Like, uh, it was a digital the... camera. Oh, because I was going to say, maybe yeah. there would be like some superimposition I mean, issue. Yeah. You know, uh, who knows? Maybe it's a lens flare, but it sure looks like a translucent hooded figure just kind of floating around. Uh, it's creepy. Yeah, I have it on my phone. I'd be happy to put it online if you want. Yeah, so, you know, I've definitely had a couple of weird experiences, but nothing like that. Uh, what that came out of was just this idea that I'd had for a very long time about, about moments somehow corrupting each other in time or like spaces becoming corrupted in a way that makes no sense. I, I was thinking of it in terms of, you know, suppose you have a computer 
on a desk in a room and perhaps a couple of files on the computer somehow corrupt each other. Like, it could happen. But on principle, the computer shouldn't be able to corrupt the wallpaper and the wallpaper shouldn't be able to corrupt the lamp. And like if things become corrupted that shouldn't, then then that's evidence of some kind of weird simulation hypothesis moment. So I'd kind of had that idea in my head for a while. And that was what comes into play in the book where that moment in the forest in 1912 is being corrupted by a different moment that's somewhere totally different in time and space. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. As I was reading, kind of reading with my writer hat on and thinking about the challenges presented by trying to write time travel, trying to write simulation hypothesis, trying to write well into the future or far back into the past. I mean, you've Mm -hmm. given yourself some pretty big challenges here. And so this moment that you read where Edwin is in the forest and he's at this maple tree and there's this kind of schism you know, between moments in time, essentially manifesting. I think when I first read it, I was like, wow, how how did Emily come up with this? But then it's like, if you're starting with the simulation hypothesis in mind, then you're looking for a way for it to manifest. I don't know. It just, it's like, it's almost like a C it's an issue of sequencing for me. I figured it made a lot more sense to me once I realized that was, I guess I should have realized that, but I guess like a question with regard to all of this is how do you keep from getting overwhelmed? How do you give yourself these big tasks and then write your way into them and then render this stuff in a manner that feels authentic and acceptable to a reader? Because it'd be an easy thing to screw up. Yeah, totally. I mean, this guy in the forest looks up into a tree and there's a schism in time. And yet I, who am, I think, inherently skeptical, I was I was along for the ride. Good. How did you do that? <laughs> um, practice is my sixth book. <laughs> that's really yeah. that's the honest answer. Um, yeah, you know, you just have to be kind of reckless and just sort of throw yourself into the project. And you know, anything for, for me personally, and everybody writes books differently. My first draft is always a disaster. So anything good comes about from just round after round after round of obsessive revision. And you do just get better at it, which I don't mean in an arrogant way. I just think you get better at anything. I think my sixth book is better than my fifth, and my fifth is better than my fourth, which is better than my third, just because expertise develops over time. You get better at making like those little micro choices. I think so, yeah. And for me personally, I'm also less scared than I used to be. Like, I used to be really scared about being taken seriously as a writer and like not writing anything too weird and let's keep it kind of straightforward here. And that's really gone out the window with Sea of Tranquility, which is partly just a product of the time in which it was written. There was this feeling when I started working on the book in earnest in March of 2020 in New York City of, you know what, the world is horrible. I'm just going to write whatever I want. You know, I can throw an expletive or two in there. And... I don't know that I would have written this crazy book about a time traveling detective who lives on a moon colony, you know, if, if, if we weren't all kind of deranged in 2020, which we were. Um, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. interesting. Cause as you were first saying all this, I was thinking of the word confidence. I was like, well, you know, you're six books in, you've had this massive success with station. You clearly know that you can do this and that readers are receptive. I would imagine it would give you a feeling of creative confidence to take a big swing. There's also a part of me that could be like, or, or maybe not because you would feel more conservative because you don't want to disappoint people. 
But then you factor in the real life pandemic and how fucked up everything was <laughs> yeah. in New York. Yeah, we in were spring beside of 20. ourselves. Yeah, I think, you know, I wrote a novel, the the final draft of a novel during that same time period. And I often say somewhat sheepishly that it was a creatively liberating time. It was. I had that experience. Yeah. I'm just yeah. like, fuck it. I'm going to write whatever I want. This time we're living in is appalling. And yeah, whatever. It doesn't matter. It, yeah, it, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Ma- <laughs> like I'm writing about a time traveling detective. I'm just going for it. Yeah, yeah. There was a kind of creative recklessness for me. But also I read, I think there's something you said that made me think, because I was like, oh yeah, she's right. Like seems like maybe there were like time travel was sort of in the air creatively yeah, like a lot of pe- a lot of people's antennas were picking that up mm-hmm. like and maybe it had something to do with the aw- awfulness or the appalling nature of the reality that we were living through yeah i think there's something to that i mean emma straub just published a time travel novel that is absolutely not her usual genre i, I have this sort of on again, off again correspondence with another literary novelist who who was like, oh, you're working on a time travel novel? That's so weird. Me too. And like, she's literary. <laughs> it's not, that's not her thing, but just, you know, pure third-hand anecdotal evidence. She knew two other writers who are writing time travel novels. There's that. I also wonder if there are going to be more kind of multiverse books if there aren't already. Because isn't this an awful timeline? I, I mean... I don't know about you, but I think about that a lot. Like, we're not in a great timeline over here. So, you know, perhaps there's an element of escapism in both those things that- I was going to say, like, yeah. if reality is so is so intense and awful, it makes sense to want to escape it. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, get me out of here uh, through time if necessary. So, okay. So, uh, to continue our conversation about writing, these, you're giving yourself these difficult challenges- I think in particular writing into the future because you have to invent stuff and imagine worlds and you can kind of extrapolate from where we are currently and sort of use that to draw the, the scenes that you're, that you're writing. Uh, whereas by contrast with the past, you can do research, you know, you can look at old photographs or read old books and you have source material to go mm-hmm. by. But when you're writing in the year 2400, it's just, it's just up here. And so something I noted about the way that you do it on the page is that you're judicious about the inclusion of technology in the story or like surface level or environmental details. What I found is that the, the realms that you're portraying, like these moon colonies, are not overloaded with sensory detail in the passages that depict them, but that there are key details mm-hmm. that do a wonderful job of delivering me as a reader everything that I need. Correct? I mean, is that yeah, the way that you yeah, approached that, it? Yeah, that is how I approached it. Um, I will just say working in this book gave me like a whole new appreciation for historical fiction writers because I think probably this varies just depending on how how a person is temperamentally. I find the future so much easier than the past. It's like the past you really want to get that right. Uh, you know, those are real historical details. The future, you can just kind of make it up. There's something liberating right. about that. Right. But yeah, I think what you've touched on is a decision that a writer has to make when when you set out on a sci-fi or a speculative project, which is how deeply into the weeds you want to get with your futuristic technology. No, and it's like, you know, you can go either way. 
Like I, I really love the Chinese novelist Sheshin Liu, uh, The Three-Body Problem. He gets so deeply into futuristic technology in a way that shouldn't work but does. So I find it really fascinating. I've kind of taken the opposite approach where, you know, I don't describe how the time machine works because it's just transport. I don't describe how cars work either. I'm just getting a character from point A to point B. And yeah, I think you can really go either way. I suppose that's the hard versus soft sci-fi divide. Yeah, well, I think I appreciated it. I think there are certain, I mean, I'm not somebody who needs like a five-page description of the tech. You know, I'm so mm-hmm. unmechanical as a human being anyway that I probably wouldn't understand it. I mean, we're writers. But, it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think also I noticed there were some moments in the book where you are judicious either with description or you're compressing time, mm-hmm. like in a narrative way. That's very attuned to the readerly experience. It's good plot work is Thank what you. I would say. Like, I forget exactly where it was. There was a section, oh, like the the years that, uh, Gaspari spends training for time travel. There's like yeah, a five-year... I think the transition is literally five years later, he reported to the time travel chamber. <laughs> it, I, I noted it. It's a paragraph that's right. about half a page long. Yeah. And I was like, oh, see, I'm always... I, I always have great admiration for time shifts when they're handled well in a narrative because if they're not, they bring you right out of the story. Yeah. It feels too jarring, but you, you manage to like... When it's done well, I think what it impresses me so much is that you can literally take readers through five years in a, in a paragraph. And if it's done well, it's like, yeah, of course, five years later, here we are. Right. <laughs> right. Thank you. I'm glad that worked. Yeah. yeah. Uh, velocity is really important. I, I was kind of experimenting with form a little bit in Sea of Tranquility, where it's a short novel and I wanted it to be a short novel. I I had this idea that I wanted it to be maybe even novella length or like, I, I think it's, I think it's barely over a novella. It's, it's only about 55,000 words. Yeah. So then anything extraneous has to be stripped away. And I, I really just want all my books to fly. Like I, I want, I want to edit out everything extraneous. Hmm. Well, that's definitely, it felt that way. There's an elegance to the prose. There's also a really lovely clarity to it which is so key in any book, but especially a book that takes on things like time travel and simulation hypothesis where you've got to keep people and you're jumping around in time so much and yeah. you have different plot lines and different characters. It's a big set of responsibilities and there's a lucidity to the writing that's really admirable. Thank and you. I mean, if I can read it and not get lost, then you have won because I get lost so easily. Usually. So <laughs> oh, no. Sorry I'm that. easy to, yeah, I'm easy to lose. So, uh, I want to talk to you before I let you go about the multiverse. Is that a way of putting it? That you're sort of creating across all of your fiction? Yeah. Or at least all of your recent fiction? Yeah. Uh, I love when writers do this. It's like you're creating an entire universe where characters cross over from book to book and plot line to plot line. And in one book, they might intersect with a new character or They might intersect with a character from an old book that they didn't intersect with in that book, you know, all that kind of stuff. Can you just talk a little bit about that impulse in you creatively? Yeah, sure. You know, I I think I might have just a kind of longing for order in the universe. It's it's nice to kind of pull these projects together and think about how they might be part of some kind of massive whole. 
often it's just a matter of falling in love with particular characters. I really liked Miranda in Station Eleven, and that's why I brought her back in The Glass Hotel. I really liked Clark, too, but I haven't figured out how to bring him back yet. And then when I was writing Sea of Tranquility, I realized that I wanted to have a 2020 section because, you know, we touched lightly earlier on the month of February 2020 in New York. I'm obsessed with that month. Just that kind of mass failure of imagination where we absolutely knew what was coming. We're not idiots, but we somehow didn't quite believe it was coming on some emotional level. Therefore, we were totally unprepared. It's kind of fascinating to me. And yeah, so I I knew I wanted to write about that even in March 2020, like a month later. So I realized as I was thinking about that, that I had this whole cast of characters from The Glass Hotel, which I had just published, just kind of like waiting in the wings. And because, you know, we were just talking about velocity, because that's one of my core values as a writer, I can't spend that much time on secondary characters, even if they're really interesting. So in Glass Hotel, I really liked the character of Miranda. Uh, sorry, Morella, um, Vincent's best friend. But I couldn't spend that much time with her because she was not a main character. But I could bring her into Sea of Tranquility and just, yeah, just get more of her, different aspects of her life. So sometimes it's that. Sometimes it's fun to just build in weird little connections. Like in my third novel, The Lola Quartet, one of the characters is obsessed with this obscure band called Baltica, which we spend a lot of time with in the Glass Hotel. Jonathan Alcatus makes a passing entry in the Lola Quartet, and then is a major part of the Glass Hotel and a small part of Sea of Tranquility. There's a minor character in The Singer's Gun, who's also a minor character in Station Eleven. It's just fun to to build a cinematic universe. Yeah, and it's also, I think, a nod toward this greater theme that I think connects all of your work and animates you like personally and creatively, which is that, you know, we're all, everything's connected yeah, and in ways that we might not even possibly imagine. And so every writer who publishes multiple books is creating a body of work and that body of work one way or another is a unified body of work in yeah. some sense. And I think you're just maybe by doing this recognizing it or being more honest about it, right? <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fun to do. I enjoy it. So I know in the first conversation that we had, you know, years and years ago, we talked more about your upbringing and, you know, you were homeschooled until mm-hmm. 15. I think we got into all that. I, I, for, so. I did. I did not listen to our last conversation before this one. So it's been a while. I'm guessing that, that we got into that. We so I'm not going to because there wasn't that much work to talk about. It was it was the singer's <laughs> gun that was like 2010. It was a, yeah, it yeah. was at the Lola Quartet. It was something okay, like that. Okay, right, but, right. Uh, I do know also that you, in your youth and in into I think your early adulthood, were a dancer. I was, yeah. Like modern dance. Yeah, I trained in ballet and then switched over to modern because ballet is basically impossible. Yeah, but yeah. It, but the point is, like, you were into it. Like, it I was, was not it. like a, I was it was not a hobby. No, that's what I went to school for. Okay. Yeah, I'm always fascinated when I'm talking with a writer who is what I would call like a hybrid. You know, sometimes it'll be a writer who is like a rock musician or a, you know, painter, whatever it is. If you can look back on your time studying dance and working as a dancer, and draw any lines to your career as a writer in ways that it has informed it? Like 
are there things you learned as a dancer that have carried over? How, how did it influence the work that you do writing fiction? I think the major influence had to do with work habits and discipline, where it just takes the most inhuman discipline to be a dancer. It, that is a really hard life and like you really got to love it. And it's, yeah, it, it just takes so much discipline. So I think that having been a dancer made me a more disciplined writer and probably would have made me a more disciplined teacher or attorney or whatever other thing I could have done, you know, if I hadn't started writing. I think also this was something I thought about more with my first three books when that was more the kind of career where you know, you do the event at the independent bookstore and one person shows up or, you know, you're just like begging anybody to read you. Um, and it can feel like a hard life. Like there were, there were definitely tours around that time where, you know, it was like six hours on a Greyhound from the South up to some other part of the South, you know, and like creepy airport hotels, which you choose because they're $67 a night, like that kind of tour that can feel pretty hard and pretty demoralizing. And something I used to think about back then was, this is really hard, but it's easier than going to an audition. And I have retained that a little bit, even though my career is easier now because there are more readers where, you know, my worst day as a writer is still better than being in the audition room, which, you know, just being like one of 200 women in skin tight clothes with a number pinned to my chest competing for one job. Like, I don't have to do that anymore. So I think there's something about the dance life being so hard that it makes other careers seem easy. Well, yeah, not only that like aspect of it, like the physical, like the judgment, right? Like yeah, you're being judged. Yeah, it's like, exactly. it's like you're all, it's almost like a live, like a livestock. I was thinking like a, of like a livestock auction or something. It can feel <laughs> like, that way. And also just the physical risk of it where, you know, if I blow out my knee tomorrow, I'll still be a writer. That's a dance is so precarious just in how dependent well, you are on the body. That was the second part of my thought was like, it's physically punishing. Very, it's not just yeah. like the, the the discipline of having to like go out to those auditions and practice, 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 but ballet, modern dance, like it is painful. Yeah, absolutely. So by contrast, like writing might be like psychically painful. And like my neck <laughs> but, screwed up, but I have a standing desk, so it's fine. You know? it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, much, it's nothing. It's nothing, nothing compared, compared to, dance. to dance. Yeah. So are you working on anything new? I know we're on paperback for Sea of Tranquility. I always ask writers if they've got something cooking. I have to believe you've got something going. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm working on a new novel. It's, I'm only halfway through the first draft, so it's going to be a while till it's done. It's another kind of multiverse situation, which has been kind of fun. The protagonist of the new novel is the villain from my second novel, The Singer's Gun. Oh wow! Yeah. So it so did it begin as most of your books begin with like an attempt at like it's like this attempt at literary fiction that then kind of morphs into maybe something that's like a hybrid form of literary fiction with science fiction. I mean, if it's a multiverse novel, right? But I love this idea of your creative process being super generative and ultimately successful, but that the roots of it are always like a failed attempt. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. The roots that's are instructive. always chaos. Um, yeah. Yeah, it came out of some crazy idea I had that was sort of multiverse related, uh, which I don't want to give away the plot because I haven't figured out what it is yet. Yeah, I don't know what it'll be. It's such a weird book. I've, so I've been working on that. I've also been working on a feature film adaptation of my first novel, 
uh, last night in Montreal with my friend Semi Chalas, so I kind of met through screenwriting. And that's been really fun too. I, I really love that form. Great. Well, I appreciate the time. I know you've done a million interviews, so I hope this in some way distinguished itself in, in a small way from the, the others that you've done. I also appreciate your willingness to talk with me through like a post-COVID laryngitis situation. It sounded great. It worked. (laughs) Good, good. (laughs) So appreciate it and best of luck to you on all that you have going. Thank you so much. It's a great interview. All right, folks, there we go. That was my conversation with Emily St. John Mandel, author of the novel Sea of Tranquility, available now in trade paperback from Vintage. You can find Emily on the internet at emilymandel.com. Follow her on Instagram and Twitter. The handle on Twitter is at Emily Mandel. Once again, the book is called Sea of Tranquility, out in trade paperback, a transporting work of fiction. Go get your copy immediately. Don't forget to support this show. If you love this show, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod for as little as $1 a month, patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Get yourself another people t-shirt at otherppl.com. Sign up for my free once a week email newsletter at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It helps new listeners find the show. Watch my conversation with Emily St. John Mandel on the Other People YouTube channel. Hit the subscribe button. It's free. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you have thoughts to share, you can email me. The address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. My novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, is out there in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. It's out there. It's waiting for you. It might be of interest. Maybe not. It's up to you. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Coming up next on The Other People Show, I will be in conversation with Hannah Petard, who has a riveting new memoir out called We Are Too Many. You don't want to miss that one. All right? Stay tuned. Stay tuned.